Well, welcome to the next episode of Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm uh, broadcasting from southern Utah right now, and I got uh, my my co-host here. He's uh, where are you from today, Dan? Oh, I'm I'm in Auburn, California today. I'm right here at home. So, and we have a guest today from yet a third location. We have Dr. Tina Saitone. Um, who is uh, Extension Livestock Economist with UC Cooperative Extension. I think that's what your title, right? Close yeah, enough. yeah. Livestock and, and Rangeland Economics. Yeah. And um, also at UC Davis. And, and we're talking to Tina today from up at Lake Almanor. So Tina, thank you for, for joining us. We're really excited to have you, have you with us today. Well, pleasure is all mine. Well, we'll see how you feel at the end of the, end of the session. Okay, we can do a survey at the end. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, we, we, Ryan and I have been talking a lot about economics and, and kind of the business of, of raising sheep over the last couple of weeks, really. And, and we thought it would be really helpful to have um, somebody that knows infinitely more than either one of us kind of about the economics of the livestock business, especially when it comes to, to processing. And, and you and I talked a little bit last week, Tina, you've been involved in some antitrust work and, and done a lot of, of work kind of on the economics around uh, meat processing. And I was wondering if you could give us a little more of your background and, and kind of your experience in some of these topics. Yeah, yeah, sure. So after um, finishing my PhD at Davis, I won't tell you what year, I'll let you guys all guess. <laughs> the age of my voice or my uh, <laughs> video, one or the other. Um, I actually worked at a litigation consulting firm in the Bay Area for a few years. Um, and I was essentially staff support for um, experts who would testify in antitrust cases. Um, given my background in agricultural economics specifically, I was assigned to a lot of agricultural cases. So I worked on um, gosh, a variety of industries while with that firm um, on some dairy price fixing lawsuits, um, some alleging monopsony power over producers in dairy, uh, packer and stockyards, violation case against Pilgrim's Pride. So that would be broilers. Um, and then in a wide variety of produce, um, sugar beets, just kind of you name it, there, <laughs> there was a case about it probably. I was uh, at least aware of it, if not actively working on it there for a few years. So um, in terms of meat packing, certainly that's fundamental to my current position um, in livestock and rangeland and was also integrated into my, some of my early research interests as well. So looking at uh, market power um, in that sector and then also even more recently about um, the impacts that COVID-19 has had on um, rural host communities that, that house plants and how the, the plants have actually increased transmission rates. So um, a wide variety of meatpacking related interests and research. Yeah, yeah, and all, all timely for us in the, in the sheep business right now. Absolutely. Ryan, do you want to take the next question? I know we kind of, kind of went through these. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the main reasons we wanted to um, kind of bring, bring, you and ask you, bring you in and ask you some questions uh, 
is that we just had the bankruptcy of Mountain States Rosen Co-op, which is the, I believe they're about 20% of the industry. And um, with that, the, uh, the, uh, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of um, things that are being said by a lot of people in the industry that might be true and might not be true. And we felt that it was a good opportunity to really take an outside look at what are the actual effects when basically a packer that large goes bankrupt. And then what are some of the cautions to not do um, in rushing around to try to deal with the, the, the major issue that that's happening. Um, so I guess the main question I'm asking is, you know, you have Mountain States Rosen go bankrupt and now JBS is buying that plant back from them and they're going to shutter it and not process lambs anymore. So in your opinion, um, Dr. Satone, what, what are your kind of concerns for people in the industry and what are some of the short, and if you want to touch on long-term ramifications of a bankruptcy this big and the loss of, of uh, processing? Sure, sure. So um, I think the major short-term impacts are, are going to be certainly the closure of that plant, reducing processing capacity, um, obviously very quickly, right? The bankruptcy sale just went into effect. And so um, the displacing those lambs that, that need to be processed is going to create, obviously, um, an oversupply in the market for lambs, right? And so that's going to depress prices. Um, an analogous situation that we actually like saw not that right? long ago was um, when was Tyson like actually decided right? in their uh, beef packing plant that they were no longer going to take Holsteins, period. Um, they, they wanted to switch to a more Angus-centric uh, program, so they just said, okay, in this one plant, we're not going to take Holsteins anymore. We saw um, prices there drop about 24%. Um, for, for Holstein steers and heifers compared to comparable Angus stock in that region. So these, these plants draw obviously from a relatively um, tight regional market, right? Um, because of the shipping associated with animals, we don't want to ship them any further than we have to, right? There's costs with shrink, mortality, sickness, all of those things. So we want, so that ends up creating these local, essentially procurement radii for plants. And so when a plant gets shut down, um, it's going to have the most significant ramifications close to it. And um, those can reverberate very widely in an industry like this when there's very few processors. Um, so I think in the short run, we have to anticipate prices declining um, maybe quite sharply. Um, in the longer run, I think that there is um, the opportunity and the forecast that there's going to be some new processing plants coming online um, in Colorado and in Texas. And so I think that that will help in the long run mitigate that downward pressure on land prices. Um, and it essentially that longer term will be defined by producers reshuffling to where they can find capacity and where it financially works for them. Do, do you have, just to jump on the tail code on that, is there in the beef side, like when the Holstein 
um, when they stop processing in Holsteins, what, what kind of time frame does it take for that market and the people supplying that market to kind of figure out a new outlet? Is it a 12 month time frame? And just, for, you know, that's yeah. uh, in, it'll never be correct, but it'll be approximate. <laughs> sure. Yeah. If you want to say that, that the lambs are like cattle and, you know, all of those yeah. kinds of things, um, you know, it took, so we saw prices for feeder cattle drop, um, very substantially initially, probably about 24, 25%. That started to moderate about eight, nine months in, um, and they started to, to come back up. Um, they were, they kind of came up to about a four to 5% decrement relative to Angus um, about 24 months later. So um, kind of a big bottom and then started to gradually increase as, as people kind of found their way out of it. So if lambs are, are like feeder steers, then, um, you know, it might be an ugly six to eight months. Of course, we didn't have the, the extra plants possibly coming online sooner. So maybe if the, if the Colorado plant they're anticipating comes online sooner, you know, you might see a, a more quick increase in that, that price recovery. Just just to further that thought a little bit, do you think that the more rapid turnover in, in lambs versus the kind of the lifespan of, of feeder cattle um, shortens that window or, or does it really have any effect? I mean, we're, we're, process, we're marketing lambs within 12 months of, of breeding decisions as opposed to, to cattle where it may be, you know, 24 to 30 months after a bull goes in with the cow. Does that turnover rate change that window at all? It certainly, it certainly could in two respects. I think that that shorter time frame is probably going to inherently make that those those both those ups and downs more volatile mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. because there's just shorter windows when people are buying feeder lambs or you know wanting to process right. lambs that are ready to go. And then I think the no another thing that's going to make that more volatile is the, the seasonality with which lambs are processed. So processing capacity is going to get really tight during certain seasons and then lax during others. And that's going to inherently make prices um, go up quicker and down quicker. So increasing the overall volatility. Right, so so go ahead, so well, to take that, just find this, keep continue to extend that thought. They, um, would you say that the most likely is more extreme volatility than the other, because of the smallness of the industry and the shorter processing or the you know the shorter time to market lambs have versus cattle. So you were cutting out a little bit in the initial part of your question. You just asked oh, us I, inherently about um, yeah, yeah, underlying so, volatility of prices. Yeah, would do you, do you would you forecast just and this is our, this is all guessing and that's why it's fun because there's no accountability guessing on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. We're but, just like uh, you know doing weather here, right? We right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you know it might rain on average. Um, yeah. So, but would you guess that there are just that, that the impacts of this would show itself in more extreme volatility or in kind of a, a V or whatever you call it, a depression 
depressed prices followed by a recovery? Or do you think it's going to be marked by more volatility? Um, so I think that I think you're going to get a big decrease here right in the short run. I think that people are going to well, that's be already happened. Yeah. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so um, I think that the the recovery might be more volatile. So with uh, with calves and, you know, with feeder cattle and Tyson, we saw kind of like a monotonic increase, you know, kind of approaching that, you know, four to five percent off um, later 24 months later, I think, you know, it was just pretty monotonic. I think the seasonality and the shortness of uh, the cycle in lambs, you might see more up and down in that recovery um, yeah. before you kind of reach another steady state. Hmm. What, you know, and, and I think those are, those are all issues that, that many of us are experiencing as we speak, but are there other problems associated with increasing concentration in, in, in meat processing? Sure. So there certainly can be. Um, so let, let's start out just thinking about the possible problems with concentration. So we've seen horizontal concentration, which means ownership concentration, right? Um, mm -hmm existing processing capacity owned by fewer and fewer entities. Mm -hmm. um, we also have seen um, maybe less so in lamb, but certainly in the other, you know, in beef, in broilers, in hogs, we've seen also more vertical integration or coordination, we would call it. So contracting, um, you know, between various stages in the supply chain. And all of those things mm -hmm. work in concert to make it easier for processors to exercise market power. And what that would mean would be easier to depress the prices they pay to producers when they buy lambs in this case, or, you know, fed cattle or hogs, right? And so that's always the fear, is the more concentration, the fewer players, the easier it is for them to coordinate, not compete actively, and suppress prices. And so certainly there have been numerous lawsuits over the last, you know, I mean, since 1921, right? There's been <laughs> lawsuits in the beef industry about price yeah. fixing and processing. Um, you know, broilers has been subject to the same um, types of allegations. Um, one thing I will say is we've done as an economics profession, a lot of research on um, particularly um, beef processing and hog processing to a lesser degree lambs. But um, in our research, we have found either that processors are not exercising monopsony power, so they're not depressing prices, or in the very few instances where we do find it um, using statistical modeling, it's, it's on the order of like 1%. So it's very, very small. And so as economists, we think about it and we go, okay, well, they're all set up to do this essentially. Like, why aren't they doing it? Mm -hmm. And um, I think one thing we always need to be thinking about is there's a certain symbiotic relationship between processors and, and producers, because if producers are driven out of business by having low prices, um, paid by processors, then there's no one to supply their plants anymore. 
right? And um, so they can't really depress prices um, below essentially a, a competitive level, right? Which assures producers essentially a fair rate of return. Otherwise, there will be no producers to supply animals anymore. So, so those are kind of the fears about, you know, all the antitrust concerns about horizontal coordination. We just have not, as a profession, found a lot of evidence of them to be true. There haven't been a lot of rulings in antitrust courts um, against um, processors uh, price fixing. There's been a few, but they've been quite a lot of years ago. Um, so that, that doesn't mean that they're not doing it, but they're not getting caught doing it. <laughs> can, can you talk uh, just a little bit um, about the, the feeder um, segment of that, of that production line? Um, oftentimes we're looking producers straight to packers, but the majority of the products actually getting traded through feeders. And so these contracts that are being entered into, even in the beef industry, they're, they'll contract with a feedlot who then sourcing their livestock. And, um, and I see a push to potentially go that way in the sheep industry and, and just how that's that segment of the industry, when they contract direct to a plant, kind of the reasons why they would and why they shouldn't. And then also how that's why that risk is inherently different than a producer risk. Yeah, sure. So, so essentially, um, the vertical coordination piece, right, or the vertical integration piece. So, it's been certainly very controversial in in beef, and it's been brought up a lot recently um, in response to um, packer margins. So, the difference between processor and fed cattle prices um, went crazy during COVID. Um, unprecedented levels, like $279 a hundredweight, I think at its max, what that spread was. Wow. Wow. And so um, that caused a lot of concerned constituents um, to actually have senators introduce bills to start uh, mandating that packers actually purchase like 50% of their fed cattle uh, on the spot market. So actually, you know, negotiate and compete for those animals. Um, and so those that contracting, I mean, contracting can be beneficial to producers. Um, so if we're thinking about feeders contracting, I mean, if you can actually have assurance of processing capacity and a home for the animals that you need to get processed, there is some, some risk reduction in that strategy for you as a feeder. Um, the risk is oftentimes those contracts are tied to um, spot market prices. And then those spot markets, because we're all contracting, are getting thinner and thinner. And that means just fewer and fewer transactions. Um, so that means that those very few transactions are going to have huge um, changes to that market, right? So if we sell you know, 300 head at a, at a wildly high price, that on a thin traded market is going to cause the price to go way up, right? Or, or the opposite. So it's going to make the spot market inherently more volatile. And then it's going to essentially be the tail wagging the dog, making the contract prices more volatile. And so while there is a risk reduction strategy in having a home to process, 
Um, I think the the price you tie your contract to is is really the the crux of the matter in in those contracting or vertical you know integration instances really. Speaking a little more on the on the kind of comparison with the beef industry, how would you compare or contrast what what we're dealing with in the lamb market versus what our our beef counterparts have been dealing with during COVID? Have there been a lot of similarities or has it been kind of a different different impact depending on the industry? So there's, there's substantially less reporting on lamb processing plants. Um, and that's it's partially because of the um, Food Safety Inspection Service regulations on reporting. So a lot of the data that I've been looking at about COVID has been focused on very large processors. Mm -hmm. So that process essentially more than 10,000, 10 million pounds a month. And so um, that gives us an incomplete picture of, of any processing industry, regardless of species. But the data that we have, we're privy to doesn't include any lamb plants because they're not meeting that threshold. Mm -hmm. What we've seen in large um, beef and pork plants specifically is um, the shutdowns and the slowdowns to processing um, kind of all together culminated in a couple weeks where there's about 40% less um, wow. processed in, in head numbers wow. um, than compared to 2019. And that created um, large uh, impacts for, yeah. for beef and hog prices, about 25% reductions um, compared to January of that year. So anytime we see processing capacity, um, you know, clo either closed in this case, like we're talking about, or, um, you know, not being utilized um, to essentially an efficient scale. Those plants like to run at about 95% of capacity, five days a week, sometimes right. Saturdays, and that's when they can be profitable. Um, once we get down into like running at 80%, 70% due to social distancing or just workers being sick, um, you know, we see, we see big, big impacts in the market that typically are reverberating through throughout the US. Was there an increase in carcass weights as a, as a result of that bottleneck where cattle getting bigger? Uh, somewhat. I think, I mean, less than 100 pounds in, in okay. average slaughter weight um, for, for steers and heifers. So yeah. not crazy. So they're saying right now we have a backlog of about, I think, if we kept running at where we are now, September 1, I think we have about 300,000 head of cattle that really should have been harvested already, but you know haven't because of COVID. So we still have too much supply out there. And so prices have, have rebounded some, but haven't fully recovered. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so I'm sure this, you know, to the extent that you know, more medium-sized lamb processing plants have, you know, had to slow down due to social distancing or, you know, other 
COVID-related measures um, being put in place, that there's there's similar impacts there as well, I'm sure. We're just not getting the data to, to quantify those. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, and that I think that kind of brings me to another question that I get a lot here in the foothills where we've got a lot of smaller producers and a lot of direct marketers. Um, do you think some of those small and very small packing houses are part of the answer? And if they are, how do we figure out the economics? It sure seems like they haven't figured out how to make any of those really small places profitable or we'd have them all over, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's been a huge topic. I'm sure you've seen the, the media frenzy following these big plants going down. Um, there's been a ton of argument for smaller, more regionalized processing capacity. And certainly, um, there may be a variety of benefits to that. Disease resilience may be one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I think that it, myself and, and certainly colleagues um, in the Midwest that I've heard talk about this issue also point to the fact that, um, you know, we, we need um, relatively inexpensive food to feed large segments of the United States. And those large packing facilities are more efficient and thereby less costly. So there are gonna be trade-offs. Yeah. If, if we're gonna to go to a smaller scale, more regionalized plant system to guard against something like COVID that happens once in, I don't know how many lifetimes, <laughs> you're gonna be foregoing a lot of efficiency, putting cost into the system. Ultimately, if prices of, of meat go up, um, consumers are start eating less. Um, and so we have to also be ready for that trade-off. Are we going to produce less animals because we've gone with a smaller, more regionalized system? Um, so I think we have to be careful in sacrificing kind of efficiency gains we've seen um, solely to kind of have a, a disease risk mitigation. There may be other reasons to do it that might be profitable. So some of the niche marketing opportunities that have popped up in response to COVID, I think give people, um, you know, some, some opportunities that they don't always have and maybe those channels will stay open after we get back to normal, whatever that'll look like. Um, but I think we always wanna be cautious that, that producers that are doing niche type marketing um, and using these smaller scale plants are sometimes bearing a lot more risk than their counterparts that are, you know, kind of in the more conventional supply chain and selling to feeders or larger processors. Um, it seems to me that that's almost a fundamentally different model for the processor to begin with, right? It's, it's more of a service model as opposed to kind of the traditional manufacturing model where you, you take a, a raw product or raw product and convert it into something um, that people will buy and you you take that margin based on that that conversion as opposed to just charging so much for the service and never having any ownership of the product and that seems like that's a fundamental difference in that model yeah yeah and you take away a lot of the possible upside to processing right. by doing that and so what that means is you're going to either you're either going to pay more for the service right to keep that processing plant in business or you know, that processor is going to have to have that possible upside by, by owning that product and then wholesaling it to other channels, right? Some of the, yeah. 
a lot of the reason why the big processors can be successful is is because during good times they can you know they can do pretty well right. <laughs> selling to grocery stores food service all those kind of things and so you know they'll weather the the rain better um if they've if they've made some money they have to make money too right so yeah, right. they're going to continue to exist so um yeah are there are there any um uh, do you have any concerns with with people wanting to rush to backfill a void caused by a bankruptcy in the industry there's seems to be a lot of push to that we just need to have a large another large scale plant processing and and I'm curious do you have any words of caution against that or is it a good idea um, so yeah, as an economist, I think I'm, uh, my job's almost to be pessimistic. So I'm cautious <laughs> against everything. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that whoever's considering backfilling this capacity needs to always be cognizant of, um, always supply and demand. So I think particularly the underlying supply and um, in the case of lamb, particularly the seasonality associated with processing. So I mentioned these plants are most profitable when they're running at full capacity, you know, every week of the year, 95%, right? Um, it works better for their labor force, for their um, health insurance, for their employees, you know, just all of these fundamental things that makes them least cost. But kind of the cyclical processing um, throughout the year that we see in lamb, I think is a, is a huge challenge for that processing sector and probably contributes to um, Mountain States Rosen going bankrupt. It probably contributed to why JBS sold that plant 15 years ago um, and why a lot of these, these processors, you know, have a hard time staying in business. So I think I would, definitely be cautious of backfilling that capacity, especially with, um, you know, industry outlets suggesting that there's probably two plants coming online, maybe by the end of the year. I think, I think what you really don't want is, is too much processing capacity. If you're a processor, that's really dangerous. Um, that, yeah, that, that's going to go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was going to say, so what if, what, what do you, what do you, uh, what's an obstacle or, you know, say, say you're a hard headed sheep guy like me and, and um, you're dead set on doing something. What are some of the obstacles that you need to overcome in opening a new facility? Um, so I think, I think where you locate it is key. So I think that these, I was talking a little bit earlier about kind of the regional procurement radii for these plants, right? Um, having a sufficient supply uh, near your, your processing facility is gonna be key. And how you define near is gonna be a little tricky. So obviously uh, trucks with, with lambs in them need to run road miles and not, you know, kind of uh, just uh, as a crow fly miles. And so you need to have, you also need to have a sufficient number of producers um, to, to supply that plant within that kind of procurement radius, whatever you kind of think it is, um, logically as a producer. And then there's the labor challenge. So, um, 
you kind of have a trade-off. Are you going to make it a very technologically advanced plant so you use less labor? Or are you going to have to try and um, use kind of the old disassembly line method with a lot of labor-intense hand butchering? Um, you know, which, you know, there's trade-offs, right? So you kind of big upfront uh, capital cost in terms of technology or maybe a lower capital cost initially, but a lot of um, labor challenges. Um, those are, I think, location labor are really fundamental to to that, that decision. Um, oh, sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead, pull up. Oh, I, I'm just curious. You never mentioned the, the retail and the sales end of opening a facility. <laughs> yeah, so, so let me also back up. One other thing, too, is, uh, you know, the, the regulatory side. So, um, you know, putting a plant in California uh, <laughs> would, be, would be high cost of regulation, right? So, so the regulatory side needs to come in. I think I, I didn't mention the retail side simply because um, I think that it's, it's pretty feasible with um, cuts these days to, to get them shipped pretty much anywhere in the U.S. relatively affordably compared to shipping lambs to process, right? So um, in terms of relative costs of, of the business, I would worry much more about the procurement side and, you know, the, the lamb side versus, versus the retail side. I mean, if you were located close to somewhere that had a really good demand center for, for lamb, that would be great. But I think that's easily overcome by shipping where the, some of the other things are not. I want to come back to the technological piece that you mentioned there too. And I'm, I, this may not be a, a question that any of us have an answer to, but does the tech heavy approach to meat processing require a very uniform product in terms of size and, and quality to make that effective? Is that, does that influence whether you go with a labor heavy system or a tech heavy system? Um, in terms of the certain product. yeah so certainly this gets out of my area of expertise uh pretty quickly and pretty far but the literature <laughs> that i've read um particularly recently about some of the COVID challenges were saying that um, a lot of the beef and hog plants in particular have stayed labor intensive because of the significant variation in carcasses so whether it's genetics or, you know, feeding, muscling, all those kind of things that they've never been able to achieve any kind of uniformity. And so the labor is more efficient. Mm -hmm. So we've seen broilers be more um, advanced technologically. We also see those plants not um, huge, as significant contributors to COVID as beef and pork. Hmm. Um, because we have less labor in the plant, there's less contact among workers. Um, and so, you know, so there's, there's less disease transmission there. Not that COVID's, you know, a reason to do anything long-term. I don't think it's a once in a lifetime right. thing, but, um, and I know Superior's gotten quite a bit of, of tech in their, in their Dixon plant. And, mm -hmm. um, I think that as we get more advanced with, with artificial intelligence and different 
laser type technologies, I think the tech will become more feasible. But yeah, mm-hmm. I've always heard that carcass variation and you know frame variation is what keeps uh, some of these old, older, larger plants more labor intensive. Yeah. Um, this is kind of related to the last couple of questions, but one of the common when we said we were going to do this topic, this I got this question about a hundred times. So, <laughs> well. Not that many. There's not many sheep guys, but um, how, how would you address producers' concern that there has to be another large processor, large traditional processor, to compete with Superior Farms? Um, I would say that um, I would say that competition is is always good. Um, I would also say that simply having one other big plant um, may not be the answer. So if there's only two large processors in the industry as an economy, easy for them to elude, whether formally or informally. Um, they're going to have buyers at the same auctions. They're going to be dealing with the same feeders, um, you know, information. You know, you know how it is. Everything leaks like a sieve, right? You, Not an you know what somebody else has paid. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, you know, without a lot of effort, I feel like, you know, having one other processor, both of them will know exactly what the other paid the day before. And it's very easy to, to coordinate that. Um, I'm not saying that they would, but I mean, competition's always better. I'm just saying one more large processor may not be the answer right um so this is one of the interesting things that has come out of this whatever you call it out of the statistics that have developed over this last year is that the percentage of lambs getting processed and sold through uh, non-traditional markets so we call it the ethnic market that has actually grown to where they're they're they are, I think they're over a third of the industry now. They're like 34, 35%. And so with the advent of that, and, and that almost trades because they're lighter lambs, it trades, they, it really was, wasn't affected or the price didn't really drop when this COVID happened. It actually traded and stayed strong. But as that segment of the industry grows, those, the commercial market and that market have to merge at some point, don't they? Uh, they will certainly reach essentially um, a, an equilibrium. So that doesn't mean they'll trade at the same price, but what it means is the price spread will probably remain constant. So I would call that kind of the, it would almost be analogous to that Holstein Angus um, scenario I was talking about earlier. So Holsteins mm-hmm. were always selling uh, below Angus by roughly, you know, four or five percent. Um, and so what we did is we we call them substitutes, right? So Holsteins versus, you know, Angus steers or, you know, lighter lambs that are going to the ethnic market versus more commercial lambs. Um, we're going to always expect those prices to stay apart, probably. Um, but we think that that wedge will stay pretty constant because you can arbitrage across the two markets, right? You just, you just feed your, your lambs a little longer and they're going to merge into that, that more commercial market. And so um, we're, we would anticipate the wedge 
to stay the same. So those two markets would move together. I guess the, the other question that occurs to me, Tina, is, is are we focused on the wrong question or the wrong problem as an industry? It, it seems like sometimes it's easy to focus on, on the lack of processing and, and blame all our woes on that. But are there things that we as an industry maybe should focus on outside of processing that would, that would lift all those boats? You know, you, you talked about it being a, um, a symbiotic relationship. Are there some things that we should partner with our processing um, folks that would improve the industry beyond just processing capacity? Yeah, I think that the, I think, and it's a hard question. I think that fundamentally what would um, lift the whole industry, that kind of rising tide lifts all bolts thing would be, um, you know, a shift in demand fundamentally. So whether it's, you know, this expanding ethnic market that's helped bolster that segment. Um, but, you know, if you got everyone eating more lamb, everybody's going to do better, right? The processors are going to have better margins. Producers are going to do better because they're going to get more for lamb. And so, so I think that, you know, to really get that phenomenon, um, you know, it might require some increases in demand. And so how that happens is, is then the $10,000 question. Um, right. And it may be, you know, I, I don't know that something like generic promotion, like the beef guys do through a checkoff. I don't know that that's, that's the right way to go. That's the way other industries have gone, so, I guess. Right. <laughs> right. So on, on the increasing demand question, um, in the sheep industry, we have the American lamb gets sold at a premium, but then the Australian lamb gets sold at a discount. And um, we've raised through, I mean, the, the lamb demand has been going up in the country, but all of that increase is getting absorbed by the Australian market and not necessarily realizing itself in an American, you know, in, in more dollars back to the farm gate. And I'm, I'm curious, does that, is that one of the unique challenges that the sheep industry has versus say beef that kind of sets the Australian price, whereas we're almost the inverse in the lamb industry? Yeah, I think, I think a big challenge that, that you, you do have is I think a lot of, I think your demand is expanding because a lot of this ethnic population and typically those mm -hmm. are lower income populations. And so they're going to be more price sensitive. And so mm -hmm. even though they want to eat lamb, if you know if there's a, a more expensive American rack of lamb sitting next to a less expensive Australian rack of lamb, probably their budget constraint is going to say, "Well, you know, I really want lamb, but I got to go with the cheaper one, even if the American lamb's better." And so I think that that you guys are a little bit in this conundrum where yes, demand is expanding, but that premium segment that can afford your your mm -hmm. better lamb is not expanding at least as rapidly and it seems so. that premium segment is is more food service oriented as opposed to retail oriented which yep. which is a double whammy <laughs> right now yeah definitely definitely because i think it's also i mean um i'm lucky that that you know someone in my household knows how to cook lamb but i think <laughs> lamb 
um, for a novice that, that, you know, it's not a staple in their house that they've always, you know, just done once a week um, right. can seem intimidating. And so there might be a piece of um, even consumer education that might expand demand there where people become more comfortable um, cooking lamb well. <laughs> yeah. But See, Ryan, we got to do a cooking show now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we kind of <laughs> dipped our toe last week into that. So. <laughs> we'll have to do a full-fledged Instagram live or something. That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, Ryan, do you have any, any last questions? That... Oh, just the last – I think the last one um, is just what's the worst thing our industry could do in reaction? What, you know, what's the – what would be a panic bad decision that would make sense when you're thinking emotionally? <laughs> um, well, so it, individual actors versus industry is always a tough question too. So oh, yeah. I would, yeah. I would hate to see um, somebody really spend a huge capital investment um, in in processing and kind of overbuild so we think there's a couple plants coming online um you know i would i would caution anybody in the industry to you know throwing millions of dollars so i think that jbs bought that plant or sorry sold that plant for 14 and a half million i believe so they so they, they sold it <laughs> They sold it for in the twenties, so it was twenty something million five five or six years ago, and then they bought it back for fourteen. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I guess just to say that none of these plants are cheap, right? They're huge, huge capital outlays that are going to yeah. require a lot of backers, um, a lot of financing, a lot of interest paid on that money. Um, I would hate to see consortiums of producers, you know, investing in something like that, you know, kind of throwing good money after bad. I guess I would say be patient. Um, I, I know this will be a very tough time in the next six months while this works itself out. Um, but I guess, you know, patience is, you know, and then operational specific things, do whatever you can yeah. to, you know, mitigate your costs. If you can wait a little bit for prices to improve um, without missing, you know, your marketing opportunities based on weights, try and do that. But yeah, I think uh, for me, one of the things I wish people would leave this episode thinking about, because I know there's a lot of concern about the industry and the bankruptcy, but at the end of the day, the most important economics are your economics on your farm and continue to work on that and um, build your supply chain on where you're selling to understand who you're selling to but uh, know that you're going to be selling at the market i think dan macon said here a couple i can't remember what it was a couple episodes back about um, if you if you if you try to add if you can't make money at market at market prices you, you shouldn't run around trying to find a premium for your products you need to work on the ranch and and um, I think, yeah, it, so I think it's really important that people just continue to focus on your own operation. This is a downturn in the market. It should pick itself back up over time. 
but just continue to focus on those on, on farm efficiencies and, and being profitable as an operation and not worry about the 40,000 foot economics too much. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's all great advice. One thing I'll mention too is um, always remember that Mountain States Rosen, you know, it was a cooperative. Mm -hmm. um, and so while that, that can be a great thing in some regards, it's also has its own challenges in terms of um, being, being profitable, paying out its members. Um, cooperatives inherently because of their structure have a hard time um, reinvesting or investing in new technology um, as a way to become more efficient because then you don't pay any retained earnings to your owners and then all of a sudden they're not getting any profit from being invested in that business and so there is a unique set of challenges with operating a cooperative um, especially one that processes animals and so I also wouldn't make a whole lot up in in your head about um, MSR going bankrupt. Um, certainly that's, you know, it's not a good thing for those um, farmer owners. Um, it will have some impact on the whole market, but I guess I would, I would not take that to mean that the industry is not um, healthy or doesn't have the potential to be healthy um, in the very near future. I think that's a really, really good point to to go out on. I think, um, you know, on a small scale, there's certainly some inherent benefit to increased cooperation, at least informally. Um, but it's almost like value added. I found that when we did direct marketing, I had all kinds of incentive when the, when the lamb market was down to go out and direct market. But when the lamb market was really high, it was much easier for me just to take my lambs to the sale or sell them to superior than it was to spend all that extra time and money to have a product to sell as value added. I, I think that those are, those are challenges you don't realize until you're in the midst of them sometimes. Ryan, any last words? No, I thought that was brilliant. I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us, Dr. Tina. And how do you say your name right, Santoni? Cytone, yeah. Cytone, Cytone. We've butchered I, the Italian out of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's well, great. Yeah, really, really helpful. Thank you for spending time with us. And, and uh, tell Ken that you deserve um, rack of lamb for dinner tonight. He, he oh, to will do. Will do. Yeah, no, it's been great talking to you guys. It's always fun to talk about these, these market challenges and possible opportunities. Yeah. Well, let's talk when things turn up again, when things are, are headed up in the right direction again. It'd be good to, good to keep talking. Sounds good. We'll see if our weather forecast holds, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Sounds good. All right. So uh, until next time, this is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon in Auburn, California. I'm, I'm Ryan Mahoney from Rio Vista, but broadcasting from Moab, Utah. So we will see you next week. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. Thank you, guys.